Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills. I'm Dr. Bob Lawrence. It's time to discover, learn, and play jazz piano. Today, you are in for a real treat. I am joined by jazz pianist, composer, and educator, Andy Mill. Andy is a Juno Award winner and has been a distinct and respected voice at the heart of New York's creative jazz scene for over 25 years. Collaborating with dancers, visual artists, poets, and musicians spanning jazz, classical, pop, folk, and world music. He has recorded and toured throughout the world with some of the very best in the jazz industry. Andy's educational background is extensive, which includes being a former student of jazz piano legend Oscar Peterson. Andy is a Yamaha artist and sought-after educator, serving as an assistant professor of music at the University of Michigan, teaching jazz and contemporary improvisation, and the assistant director at the School for Improvisational Music. Both audio and video formats are available for this podcast episode. Of course, you can listen to the audio version of this episode through any of the popular podcast directories iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and many others. Or you can listen directly on the Jazz Piano Skills podcast website, where you can also watch the video of the show as well, which I strongly recommend. Now, it's my great pleasure and honor to welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, Mr. Andy Milne. Andy Mill. Welcome to Jazz Piano Skills, my friend. Thank you, Bob. Thanks. Good to meet you. Great to be here. Oh, man. I'm thrilled. You know, and you and I have been going back and forth for a couple months trying to get a, a date nailed down and get some, some time. I know you're incredibly busy. And uh, so, I, so I, appreciate, I appreciate us carving out some time to hook up finally and get together and do this. Yeah, and I, ironically, when we schedule this, I didn't have a gig tonight, but I do actually have a gig tonight. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah, and you and you were thinking, man, I, I want to cancel, but I better not cancel. I better not no. tell this. <laughs> we didn't talk about how long it was going to be, so I thought, well, I think we're early enough in the day. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are, man. It'll only be about an hour, man. So you're, yeah. you're good. You're good. So, uh, listen, I, you know, I know you're uh, up there in Michigan, right? University of Michigan? Yes. Which, you know, fortunately, I'm a, you know, being a jazz musician and uh, a lover of jazz, that's my number one priority. But I got to be honest with you, dude, I'm a big Notre Dame fan. And when I found out that you're at Michigan, there there was a side of me that was going like, dude, I'm not having him on jazz piano skills. He's, he's, a, he's a Michigan Wolverine. I can't do, I can't do that to my Irish. <laughs> Well, you know, I've only been here a couple of years, so there's really, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm not even wearing blue. Uh, so. <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't have a, you don't have a Michigan, what, the big M on or anything. Yeah, right? I'm, not, I'm not really going out that like, like that, actually. <laughs> and I came from, you know, I came from the East Coast, originally from Canada, but I mean, like, I lived in New York for a long time. And the schools I was teaching at, there was definitely no sports culture, <laughs> not even a team of any kind. Uh, so um, it wasn't really part of my oh. ethos. It's a, it's a, it's a, in fact, the, the first time I went to the stadium here in Ann Arbor. The was big house. To, yeah, the big house was to get my COVID shot. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, to get my wife's COVID shot. And then I went back to get oh, my that's, 
Oh man, that's funny, man. That like Michigan. Come on, man. They were just like big time basketball in the yeah. final in the uh, March Madness. Yeah, yeah. I heard about it. <laughs> <laughs> Spoken like a true jazz musician. Man. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. When the when the when the when the music programs get as much attention as the sports programs, I'll I'll uh, I'll, I'll be okay. Yeah, there's parody. All right, man. I I'm I'm on board with that totally. So. Well, listen, uh, you know, to kick things off here, I want you to take some time right now and uh, introduce yourself to the jazz pianos com- community. Kind of give us a background, your your childhood, how you got into music, and w- the history of Andy and how, how you found yourself here at the University of Michigan. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you and let you uh, tell your story. So please. Wow, wow that's that's the whole hour then. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> right. hey, I'm, I'm going to go get a cup of coffee you while you talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I started playing the piano when I was about six years old. Okay. Right. Um, and at the time I had maybe heard some jazz, but I don't think I'd quite heard some jazz at that point. I think I actually started, I, it was funny. I started taking piano lessons. Um, I'm the second youngest of 10 children. And so everybody in my wow. family took piano lessons. Not everybody Loved it, but my mother kind of required it to sort of, uh, you know, as part of everyone's development, right? So, right. I, I was, but I wanted to take lessons, so I was, I was very like, take piano lessons, and uh, as a little kid, so started. In, it was, I grew up in a small town. There was, I hadn't heard any jazz. I didn't have a jazz teacher. It was, you know, so I was taking, you know, classical lessons uh, through a teacher that was, you know, affiliated with the Royal Conservatory of Music in, in, in mm-hmm. Canada. And at the time, my, 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 one of my older sisters, um, I don't think she was married yet at the time. Maybe she was, uh, but her husband, or soon-to-be husband, he really wanted to, he never had an opportunity to take piano lessons. And he was living with us over the summer, he working wow. a summer job, and he, I think he decided he would take lessons with me because it, it, you know, it's the kind of person who's very, he, he's right. been very successful in his life and, and gone on to achieve lots of things, learned to speak multiple languages and this kind of stuff. But as a, as a young kid, or he didn't have access to piano lessons. And so he, he decided he wanted to take piano lessons with me. So he would go to my piano lessons with me before he went to this job, you know, so these are like 7 a.m. piano lessons, you know, and, and he would go and, and, and as an adult, he had the cognitive ability to really excel in the theory side of things. Wow. But he wasn't really that gifted as a player, so I was sort of smoking him as far as the, on, on the piano <laughs> skills side of things. But right. he was really smoking me in the theory side. But it was this kind of funny relationship where you've got this guy who's twenty years old and this six six year old kid taking lessons uh, in tandem, you know. But so I started out. I started out taking these lessons, and I really enjoyed music. And, and that same brother in law, my brother in law Jim, he, he went, you know, eventually he turned me on to jazz, and he 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 um, he gave me my first few recordings. And so from that point on, I was kind of curious and hooked and not really sure how to process the music, but it was, it was definitely something that I, I uh, was very much drawn to and, and, and attracted to. So I, I started to just play along with records. That was really what I did. And I, so I had a wow. Les McCann uh, record, right. a couple yeah. of Les McCann records. I had some Oscar Peterson, you know, some Duke Ellington, um, McCoy Tyner. And so these were these first recordings that my brother-in-law gave me that I just played along with. I didn't have any perspective to know whether I was playing along with something that was like where to place it in the trajectory of the of the evolution of the music, where, you know, what would I, what the heck was I doing or, you know, what were these pianists doing? And, and, and right. so it was kind of just, you know, blindly just, you know, following this thing. And then at the same time, I started 
couple of years later, then I started playing the saxophone in, in uh, elementary school. So I, then I started playing saxophone with recordings. And again, sort of not really sure what the hell I was doing, but <laughs> kind of right. just like soaking it up, you know. And so that kind of p- pattern can, you know, continued and I just continued practicing. And then I started getting some books and, and, and beginning to decipher things. And then um, I guess when I started high school, I became much more serious about about uh, sort of sourcing out uh, a jazz teacher or somebody that could kind of get me going. And and then so that I kind of followed um, straight through, you know, and then went to university, um, York University. At the time, Oscar right. Peterson was a big uh, f- sort of presence there. Um, right. At least that was the appeal for me going to York, aside from the fact that I was already in Toronto and it was sort of I didn't really have to move. But I mean... I decided to go to York and, you know, kind of see what kind of interactions I could have with Oscar. And, and ironically, I didn't have like, you know, it wasn't like I saw Oscar every week for a piano lesson kind of thing. I think people sort of get that impression, but it was much more of a group um, environment with myself and about four or five other musicians that would meet with him and, and many other faculty that were fantastic, too. So I had a lot of great influences during my time at York. Um, and then um, it was sort of happenstance in a way really because I, I wasn't even plugged in in a way where I was super conscious about this but then uh, this is in 1990 so as I was coming to finishing my last year of university everybody in Toronto and musicians that I had become familiar with were all sort of saying you got to go to Banff you know and, and this is this program at Banff at the time that for the years kind of leading up to that had been run by Dave Holland mm-hmm. and um so I was like, oh, yeah, really? That sounds like a thing to do, you know? So uh, everybody was kind of coming back raving, you know? And so I, I, I applied. And that year that I applied in, in 1990, that was the year, it was the first year that Steve Coleman took over as artistic wow. director of Banff. Wow. And so um, I went and got accepted. But I mean, I, I, they, he did, at that time, they were doing live editions in certain cities and whatnot. So they came to Toronto, and Steve, Steve came to Toronto. Did it, did the uh, the editions at actually at York University where I was attending university. So the first time Steve and I met was in the edition that I did for him to get accepted to go to Banff, and I didn't know anything about his music. I don't think I had one recording. Wow! Um, and so I just thought I was playing for this guy. <laughs> 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 Meanwhile. He's this heavy force that I'm about to. <laughs> he's good about to like ch- transform my trajectory for the rest of my life, you know. And I had no idea. I'm just sitting there playing. I forget what the hell I was playing. Just sort of, you know, oh fumbling through some music. So, I mean, I, I you know, I got accepted to Banff. Went to Banff. Uh, my relationship with Steve really blossomed there, and he really recognized in something in me that he was like, okay, I like this kid, or he's got some abilities in these areas, and he's, and I was, I would practice, like, the music that he was showing us, and concepts that he was showing us, like, just sitting in a practice hut, like, all night, you know, like, it was, it was a pretty intense summer, you know. I bet. And then at the, I had already decided, um, before I went to Banff, that I was going to move to Montreal at the end of that summer because I had been going to Montreal to perform with the vocalist Renee Lee. Um, and I, that sort of came about through a friend of mine who was working with Renee and had just moved to Montreal and was working all the time. And right. what I saw in Montreal was this place where younger musicians were gigging. 
and gigging with like cross generationally in a way that didn't seem to happen in Toronto at the time that I was growing up, where it was pretty much the musicians who were established worked with one another. Right. And if you were younger, breaking in, there wasn't really room. M- many of the gigs that I got to do uh, to play with and, and gain experience with some of these uh, more experienced and and, and uh, you know real venerable sort of names on the scene in Toronto, that came about because I I was fortunate to get a gig as a leader at this venue called the Underground Railway. And wow. this venue, they loved me. And so I had like quasi-steady gigs there. And it was a nice venue, beautiful restaurant, um, had a nice piano, and, 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 and the music was featured. And it was like six nights a week. And I nice. could come in, I could right. come in and play for, right. like I'd get like a two-week stint. And at the time, Diana Krall was still living in Toronto. Then Diana came in for two weeks. And then I came in for two weeks. It was this wow. bizarre. I mean, it turned out a little different for her than it did for me. But <laughs> but it, it was just bizarre how that was the, the the kind of the cadence that we had. So I would hire all these great musicians that uh, you know I w- that were former teachers of mine or current teachers of mine, right. like you know Don Thompson, Lauren Lofsky, Pat LaBarber, Barry Allen, wow. all these all these great players wow. in Toronto that I I would never get called to be on their gigs, at certainly the way I was playing at that time. Um, but I had a gig, and so I could hire them, and I could play my own tunes. I could play their tunes. I could play standards, wow. and and so that was really awesome. And because I, I you know I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was getting some really, really valuable experience for sure. And then you know I went to Banff that summer after after those experiences. But in, in, in interspersed in there, I'd started working with Renee Lee doing this uh, uh, Billy Holiday uh, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill musical uh, theater production. So there was like we probably. It was like this tour around Montreal, essentially, where we would play these theater, uh, cultural houses um, called Maison de la Culture in, in, in the city of Montreal. So we would play these venues uh, for like a three-night run on the weekend wow. at, at, for probably like eight, eight or ten weeks, you know. Wow. So I was, I was traveling back and forth to Toronto and Montreal, finishing school, but doing these gigs on the weekend with Renee. And gaining some great experience and also kind of getting introduced to the scene in Montreal. So I was like, you know what, I think I want to move to Montreal. So I go to Banff, have this transformative experience, meeting Coleman, getting introduced to his ideas. And then I moved to Montreal and I'm there for a year and I'm on the scene. I'm kind of building, you know, really valuable sideman experience that that I wasn't getting, you know, in that same way in, in, in Toronto. And then over the course of that year, I'm, you know, maintaining a relationship with Coleman and he's like, you got to move to New York, you know? And I thought, well, I haven't even thought about it, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. Never, it never really occurred to me, you know? Uh, and so I started thinking about it, you know? And so I decided to move to New York. So at the end of that year, uh, I moved to New York and I was still, you know, uh, kind of going back and forth doing gigs in Montreal, but I moved to New York and sort of jumped in and then started joined his band and, and worked with Steve for you know better part of a decade wow. um, and I worked with Cassandra Wilson at the time as well and, wow. and so it was it was a great it was a great time to really be, be able to begin um, developing in a more um, targeted way I suppose because I, I'm acquiring you know experiences in these different um, domains but I'm also a part of something that's really specific, and it's it's got a very um, disciplined approach to the music, but it also has a very demanding approach to your role in that in the, in that environment. Right. And so, right. for me, that really uh, kind of helped galvanize like where I was going. At least I kind of 
came along for the ride and realized where I was going. And so from there, it sort of really shaped uh, what I got interested in in terms of my approach um, musically, I think beyond the piano, but but really just musically in terms of mm-hmm. really being focusing on rhythm and thinking about right. um, thinking about form in a different way. And, and and then you know from there you know meeting musicians through that relationship led to a lot of different other collaborations and then other musicians that I'd been uh, familiar with those things kind of continue to, to, to evolve. And I, at the time, I was also working with the vocalist from uh, Detroit, Carla Cook. I worked with Carla for a long time oh, yeah, through that period. Tremendous. Yeah. Um, and also then worked a little bit with other folks in, from Steve Circle, Greg Osby, and Robin Eubanks. Right. Um, and, and Cassandra Wilson, as I mentioned. And, and then um, I guess, you know, then I, I joined Carlos Ward's band, somewhere in that period or in mid to late 90s. Um, and then I started working with Robbie Coltrane a lot at that period. I mean, Robbie and I had been friends and we were working together in Steve's wow. groups. Wow. So, and then and then I sort of transitioned from Ral, Robbie's band into Ralph Alessi's band. And Ralph and I had actually met as students uh, at Banff, the same, we were there the same year. Right. And so uh, we became close friends and I joined his band sort of after playing in Robbie's band with Ralph. Um, and and then sort of been in his band for you know, but over probably about ten years now I think as well. Wow. Um, and then so, just fast forwarding, then I suppose how I got to the University of Michigan <laughs> is I can lead that back to Banff in a way because wow. uh, one of the pianists who and I'm leaving out a ton of stuff like the the piano studio that summer uh, consisted of myself. Benoit Delbecq, who's a very close friend who I have a duo piano project with. He's from France. He's a genius, fantastic pianist and a real innovator. Um, Ethan Iverson, who is, you know, sort of most notable for mm-hmm. being in the bad, pl- forming the bad plus. Mm-hmm. Um, George Colligan, who's, you know, a great player. He's out in Portland now, um, but plays multi, multi instruments, you know. Um, Ellen Rowe, who is my colleague here at the University of Michigan. Um, um Bill Peterson, who's down in Florida, a great player. Right. John Stetch, who's a great player, who was who was a colleague of mine. We went to university together for one year in, in Toronto before he moved to Montreal. He's from Edmonton, a great player. Uh I, I think he lives out west now. Um and I think there's maybe one other pianist I'm spacing. But so the point is, Ellen and I met in Bam. Right. Um and you know, then when the University of Michigan was looking for a piano faculty to replace Benny Green, she reached out to me and said, would you consider coming here? And I was like, oh, I never thought about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> because I was quite comfortable in my life. I was teaching at the new school right. and I was teaching at NYU. Right. And I lived in Harlem and I was like, yeah, I'm, I don't really need to move to the Midwest. Thank you. Um, right. So it was not really something that I was very charged about it but I was also going through some health issues at the time and so I you know started reevaluating where my life was going and sort of what I was putting myself through in that sort of you know hustle with doing these two teaching gigs and touring and and, and recording and whatnot and so it started to look more like a pretty fortuitous timing for me to be asked to do this come to, to fill this position so right that's that's sort of how I got you know to Ann Arbor was through that route. Mind you, I'm leaving out a few steps in terms of the groups that I've had. Right, right. 
and uh, the projects that I've had. Yeah, but, well, you know, that's like, you know, looking at your bio online and reading what you've done and, you know, you've you've already lived like three lifetimes. <laughs> I don't know about that. But <laughs> I, I mean, if I live three lifetimes, then I suppose, you know, Chick Korea has lived, you know, 3,000 oh, lifetimes. That, that, right, exactly, right. But, hey, a couple of things that you mentioned that I want to go back to. Uh, one, uh, you came from a family of 10 children. That's awesome, man. So where are you in that line of 10? Second from the bottom. Second, Se- second youngest, yeah. <laughs> wow. Now, are they all musicians? Is, is no. your family? Im- no. No? No, no. The music is something that's important to my family, um, but it's more like a, a social gathering kind of thing, and it's okay. almost you know, like my family gets together and we'll they'd sing songs or do right. skits even like this kinds of thing that's a big sort of thing that, that especially my nieces and nephews seem to have really picked up and on, on, on this kind of component of how our family engages socially but right but they're not professional musicians in any regard but they 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 value music for sure oh that's they awesome. all love to, they, like they all love to sing and play instruments okay. and stuff but it's 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 an amateur hobby kind of thing Okay, so yeah, so you're the you're the you're the lone wolf out of there, right? That that yeah. became the yeah, wow, yeah, that's that's awesome. Now the other thing I want to mention, you you mentioned Oscar Peterson and that you you know were in kind of a a setting where you got to engage and interact with him, even if it uh, even in, in a group setting. I think a lot of listeners would like to know a little bit more about that. What how was he like as a as a educator, and what was his what was his you know we've all heard his recordings and his amazing playing but how how did he articulate that verbally to you and and to the other pianists you know how did he communicate how he approached the study of jazz and and the playing of jazz piano he spent more time approach helping us approach the way in which we think about the music rather than for me specifically as a piano thing the, okay. the piano thing was more of an illustration. He would do that by illustration. Uh, so, I mean, first of all, this is a towering figure, right? And oh. I'm like 20, 19, you know, 20 years old. The, basically, the reason I play is because uh, seeing him. I'm growing up a young black kid in Canada, seeing this kid, seeing right. this man who's like this international jazz icon, and, and some of my first recordings being him. I'm in awe. I've seen him, you know, seen him. At that point, I'd seen him perform several times. <laughs> And here he walks into the room, and it's like this larger-than-life <laughs> godlike figure, and you're just you, you're melting. Even, you're yeah, melting. I can't you even ima- I can't even imagine, man. Yeah, so you're melting, and and he's in no way um, trying to contribute to that melting. Like he's this n- warmest, you know, uh, affable, wow. just really nurturing cat who's not in any way trying to vibe you, right? I mean, this right. uh, definitely had experiences with you know more mature musicians and whatnot out there where they're like they may not be prone to giving you um that sort of nurturing nod you know right it's just sort of more of a hard knocks kind of relationship to mentorship right which i can also respect sure but oscar definitely wasn't coming from that place so that was helpful in you know it was huge because it just kind of made it so that i could um you know kind of settle in and go okay so what do you got to show us so start starting with that right but, but so right. you know i think but he he said things that, that really made me think okay learning the music is this you have to i mean you have to know the music i mean this seems right. like a st- 
statement that's like, oh yeah, that's obvious, <laughs> right? And it is obvious, but the way he, the way he kind of like left it there on the table for you to kind of unpack um, was really impactful because then I go away understanding that, um, and but not even going away understanding it, having to think about it for two weeks before it kind of ah, I get it. Right. You know? And so now I own that in a much more meaningful way versus if he'd spelled it all out um, in in a class, you know. Right. So learning, learning, learning the music. And, and I think that uh, for me, that meant unpacking the piece and really becoming a kind of in, 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 interchangeable with it almost. Um, right. And, you know, so that you almost can't distinguish yourself from the piece because you've really become a, a, a acquainted with it. And learning right. more about the music in terms of where does it come from. Right. Now, he, pianistically speaking, he didn't have to say, here's how you play the piano. He just showed me. And the thing that I always go to when I, people ask me this question about his influence on me as a teacher was like the, the fact that I'm here in these practice rooms at school playing usually at that time, certainly at York, the jazz musicians, they didn't have the best pianos in the in the right. part of the school that we right. were rehearsing in right and it was you know just a average but fairly beat up right old yamaha yeah. you won right. upright of some kind right. you know uh, you know it was beat up you know it wasn't in tune you and you had to cover <laughs> off to try to get it to project over the drums <laughs> right. like it was work you know right right um Your and, classic and, university piano yeah you know and right. oscar comes in sits down and sounds like oscar peters down oh, on the same bench i'm sitting on you know and 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 you know, I got up, but I mean, he says, he, he sounds like Oscar Peterson. And I'm like thinking, okay, so you're telling me it's not the, Imperi- the, the, the Bosendorfer Imperial Grand that makes it so. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, you know, cross that off the list. Right. You know, I'll tell you a funny story about that. Are you familiar with Dan Hurley? Dan Hurley, you know, University of North Texas, I'm jazz not, faculty in, member, okay. you, you know, has written a lot of jazz books and you know, like the classic book that is out there, the jazz language. Uh-huh. But in, anyway, Dan tells the story that he was playing a gig at at in at the state fair, the Iowa State Fair. He's playing with some musicians out there, and the Iowa State Fair had a headline had Oscar Peterson coming in as the you know headliner to play oscar peterson right at the iowa state fair right that's a great gig yeah right so (laughs) he says so he says he tells this story he sees oscar peterson and oscar peterson goes into this tent there's a tent there on the on the fairgrounds right and dan says there's this piano uh over in the corner of of the tent and uh, Oscar Peterson is in the tent all by himself, and he just goes over and sits down on that piano, and he starts playing, warming up. And Dan said, you know, I'm kind of just sticking my head in the back of the tent and kind of listening, and I'm just totally blown away, you know, hearing Oscar Peterson play. <clears throat> and Oscar gets up, and he leaves the tent. So Dan goes in there and says, man, I'm going to sit down right now at that piano, same piano Oscar Peterson just played on. He said, Bob, he said, First of all, it was a piano that was at a state fair in a tent, so that should tell you something, right? It was just like an old upright piano in the in, in the corner. What year was this? Oh, I you know I don't know. Yeah, right. And, and, and he's, right, and he said, and that piano was like the worst piano in the entire world. It was horrible, but yeah. Oscar Peterson sounded like 
Oscar Peterson, just like what, yeah. just like what you were saying. And yeah. so you're right. It wasn't the piano. It's Oscar Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, you know, that's so funny. It's a hell of an image, too. But, you know, but it's, it's so funny because it's like, you know, I mean, I think are we, we as pianists, we kind of generally quest to play the best instrument that we can. Right. Right. And, you know, even as a kid, I, I didn't I didn't know a lot about pianos, certainly. But I, I could tell when when I heard a piano that sounded pleasing to my ears right um and and i guess the the few times that i had because i could i don't know i could definitely tell the difference between a, a, even a even a modest grand versus an upright i could definitely oh sure y- you know distinguish that and i didn't have anybody sort of sh- explaining that to me i just i, I could sense it you know so there, there you know that sort of lives on as this kind of like desire to be able to play a great instrument but then you know seeing oscar and hearing oscar playing on a subpar instrument that I was, you know, for sure struggling with. Um, and, and, and seemingly to the, my eye, he didn't seem to be struggling. Now, I mean, I never, I never worked up enough nerve to say, hey, how do you like this piano? Do right. they, you know, because he may, you know, whether he would have said, oh, that sucks, or, or he, he right. maybe would have said, oh, it's fine, you know? Yeah, yeah nothing but, wrong with that. Yeah, but I mean, I think the thing is what he, what he illustrated was that, oh, you know, he can transcend that, and the sound, therefore, is not on, in, the, in the piano as much as it, it's, in you, it's in you and it's in your hands. And I didn't know that, and I, I learned that at that moment, you know? Right. Um, and so... It's it's interesting because then you think about illustrations of that on other instruments, right? Notice, no, most notably maybe the saxophone. You know, in terms of, uh, you, you know, you could have a horn player pick up somebody else's horn and still sound like themselves, even though, Correct. of course, right. they covet they they spend all this time thinking about mouthpieces and reeds and, right? You know, I got to get this horn, I got to you know take the lacquer off, like all this stuff, <laughs> right. nerdy stuff that horn players go through. <laughs> right. It's it's like at the end of the day, somebody has their sound. It's still going to come through because it's a it's partly the way they phrase. It's partly the notes they choose. It's partly right. the ideas. But it's also just they've got a they've got a sound that can kind of come through and transcend a mouthpiece and a reed, even though they would prefer. Correct. A certain, right. you know, you know, bore and all this stuff and the thickness and, and stiffness. Yeah, and, the reed and all it, that stuff. It's like they can make adjustments on the fly, right? They just can yeah. make adjustments on the fly to allow their their voice, their sound to come out. And also, they've been working on their sound. It just, right. they, it just so happens they're working on it typically on one instrument, but they're still working on that sound, right. and that's right. what's central. And so that's why you'd hear, you know, especially the I think in an earlier time in the music where their personality was probably a lot more prevalent that sometimes is today where people can often gravitate towards one player and become right. you know so enamored by a player that it's like now we all want to sound like this person right. And, right. and we're and we're losing this sense of all this nuance where you get the differences in that palette of horn players and i think pianists have that we don't have the luxury of of, of, of playing our own acts all the time therefore it, it's even more right. important that it comes from within correct and, and right. so that was really the that really sort of opened that door for me yeah. through Oscar that I had not previously given right. any any consideration to. So. so so did he ever say to you did he ever say to you hey Andy sit down here and play something for me and then I'll, I I I I'll give you some feedback. It was more about how I was playing with the group. Oh okay. Yeah, right. it was it was generally more about how I was playing with the group because it was because that was the context. There was like I think five of us in the room. Yeah. Um and so 
that anything that he was going to share with me was going to be in service of how to contribute to the band. Right. You know? Which right. is, which is, you know, I mean, it would have been fantastic to have been able to say, do I get, you know, one-on-one -on -one piano time with this guy or no? But th right. that wasn't, that wasn't, because his visits to campus were like a, that was like an event. It was like the, the, the president <laughs> was coming to campus or something like this. It was like, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. I it was like, I and, and, it, and sometimes it was unannounced too. Oh, wow. Or you maybe just barely get like a heads up for a couple, like an hour. You're going to be at rehearsal, right? Because Oscar's going to be here. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you know, I just being in the room with him, like you said, right? Just a towering figure that, you know, oh, my. Yeah. You know, yeah, I can't even imagine. And and I can't even imagine if he would say, hey, sit down and play. I'd be like, are you out of your mind? I'm All like, right. <laughs> You're crazy, you, man. The funny, funny addendum to this relationship is then uh, I would say maybe five years ago, um, four or five years ago, I became good friends with Oscar's widow, Kelly. Right. And the first time she came to see me play, I she's sitting like, you know, right front of the stage. And I come and we hang out at the at the break and I said, Kelly, I gotta tell you, I'm kinda nervous playing for you. <laughs> and I mean, it's so it's so funny because she's not a pianist, it's not her thing, you know. I said, But it's just like you are this link to the reason I play and right. I'm a little nervous playing in front of you because <laughs> you've heard some yeah. piano. <laughs> Yeah, like she heard like Oscar in the living room. You know right. what I mean? Yeah, like yeah. I can't even imagine. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's that's um, that's a remarkable that's a remarkable uh, experience that you had. Quite honestly, you know, to to have that experience to be able to interact with with a legend, truly a legend in that yeah. way. It's 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 phenomenal. And it's a, it was it was actually a great. Um, kind of starting place to 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 expand on those kinds of like similar kinds of experiences that I think um it takes a while to get used to frankly and I you know actually a good friend of mine when we were sort of coming up and cutting our teeth in Montreal we were playing at Biddles and this is now closed but it was a venerable club there in Montreal and we would frequently you know kind of mess with one another by saying oh so and so just came in right because right. It, it, often people right. would be in town right. they'd be doing a session they had a, right. maybe a, a big gig at the at the at the the, the place des Arts or something like this not, not festival time was not really it was too, it was too much of a, a scene but 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 just generally during the year like you never knew who was popping through for something right right and so they would often come down to Biddles to see what was going on so um it was not out of the realm of possibility that anybody who you would choose to sort of drop insert name here would actually be would have just walked in. And so it was kind of this game we would play to see if we could actually mess the other person up because, <laughs> you know, we were still young guys who at this point, it's like it's it's going to like transform who am I who I am to think, oh, God, so and so is here. And so we, right. Herbie was always the one we would use to kind of go to. But right. I mean, I don't think Herbie ever came in, but I've you know subsequently played for Herbie on many occasions, and and thinking of like, well, that's, you know, not for him like a private concert, but but you know, in right. other words, he's in earshot, he may be standing in the uh, backstage or side of the stage kind of thing, or in his dressing room, you know, and so you're audible, right? right. Um, but and sort of kind of have that experience early to kind of with with Oscar and shaping that and then and then practicing with George Mitchell in, in Montreal trying to get this get this um, 
you know, to, to, to sort of unlearn this anxiety thing that, that we can take on. Right. Right. And, and, and become, uh, I remember Joanne Burkeen, she said to me, she goes, Joanne used to come to Toronto all the time when I was coming up and we became good friends and she'd come over and give me a lesson and I'd make, dinner, make my wife and I would make dinner for her and we'd, you know, so we've been good friends for a long time. And so Joanne, would, she'd say, you know, when I walk into the room, you're the same person. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Like yeah. physiologically, you're the same guy. You got the same bones and same that, that's exactly blood pumping right. to your veins, right? Right. Chemically, you might think you change a little bit, and you probably have something <laughs> that has a reaction. Right. But you're basically the same guy. So what's with the switch? Right. And, and so I, that those kinds of lessons were really important, right? Yeah, very. And, and Oscar started that pathway up because I, prior to that, I don't think I really was tweaked. You know, and and now I don't get, you know, I don't get nervous, and it's 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 the, you know, it's been a long time since I felt like I was nervous about something like that. Right. And right. Maybe I might be nervous about um, playing with somebody, but it's usually another pianist, right? You know, like I did a duo with Fred Hirsch several years ago, right? And I said, Fred, I'm kind of nervous. I said, Come on, man. He says we're good friends. I said, Yeah, I know, but uh, you're Fred Hirsch. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's it's silly because right. he's like, man, you can play many. You can, he says you can play things in one hand that I can't do in both. I said, well, maybe oh, I, yeah. I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! Well, you know, speaking of one hand, I remember when Oscar uh, suffered that stroke, right, and he mm-hmm. lost the, uh, basically, he lost the the use of his left hand. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty yeah. much, right? Yeah, I remember you know, seeing just, him at the Blue Note after that, and and it was. He still kind of he compensated, right? You know, he was well, able. He to. sure did because I I can remember listening to him going like, man, he still kicks everybody's butt with you, you know with one hand. Yeah, you that know. happened to Mulgrew too. Right. Yeah. So, well, hey, a couple other little things I want to bring up. You know, I I saw the uh, jazz album of the year. Man, that's a pretty big honor, right? The Juno Award. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually yeah, nominated for one this year, actually, again. Again. Holy smokes. For my smokes. trio record, which is successful. And, like, for folks that are listening that may not know, right, that's the, that's the Canadian, basically the Canadian Grammys, right? Yeah, or I like to think of the Grammys as the American Can- Junos. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, spoken like a Wolverine. Yeah, Just yeah, like a yeah. Michigan Wolverine. Yeah, yeah okay. more like a Canuck, I think, is like... <laughs> Yeah, I know that, but that's that, that's the that's the context for the for the Juno, you know. Which it's funny. I did an interview just yesterday that was kind of leading up to the Junos because, as I was saying, I, I was nominated for one this year, and yeah. they're like, "What does this mean to you?" And I'm like, "Well, it means a hell of a lot more uh, now than it probably would have 20 years ago because I've lived a lot more. And right. I've I've right. had lots of you know ups and downs and 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 things to celebrate and things to sort of lament, and so." Right. It's it's kind of more meaningful now. So that certainly that two years ago when I got the Juno, it was a it was huge, you know, because it was the first time I, a had been first time I'd been nominated, and b it was like a record that really, um, it was fairly transformative in my in my life and and everything that went into it was it was right. a big, it was a big accomplishment. So it was nice to kind of cap that um, yeah it's experience gigantic. with with, with, right. with an award like that you yeah know? absolutely. It's sitting right back there. You can kind of see it in the background. There, there you go. Glass statue with the black face. I see face. it. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah. Right. Awesome, man. Well, that's that's quite an honor. Um, and uh, I, you know, if, 
for the listeners out there, if they just go out and do a Google search for you, you got all kinds of videos out there and recordings of you playing, and it's uh, fantastic. So I want to encourage everybody listening to absolutely do that and go check Andy out because tremendous player. Now, some things I want to also bring up. I saw mm-hmm. something online where you did a little talk, and I want you to kind of expand on it here. And I think the name of the talk was why should an artist embrace boredom? Boredom. Do yeah. you remember that talk? Yep, yep. <laughs> okay. So let, talk a little bit about your uh, philosophy there. Why an artist should embrace boredom? Well, I think, you know, it's even more uh, important now than ever because we have many distractions right. to um, continue to prevent us from sort of exploring creative problem solving. And right. I think when we're left without stimulus, right. we have uh, two choices. We shut down or we begin to notice things. We begin to draw connections. We begin to unpack things and extract things. And I think that you, having boredom is actually a perfect recipe for setting the stage for kind of finding creative solutions. I find... Mm-hmm. You know, like you think of something as mundane as having to go to the bathroom. So you're in a right. meeting and you say, excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom for, you know, and you, right. and, and while you're in the bathroom, you're sitting there doing your thing or you're standing there doing your thing, whatever, <laughs> you know, right. and, and whatever, whatever your preference. And, right. and, and you all of a sudden go, oh, I got it. Right. And you come back into the meeting and you go, hey, excuse me, everybody, it just, I just thought about this. What if we put this with this? Yeah. No, that's a great idea, man. Yeah. yeah. How'd you think of that? I said, oh, I was just in the job, you know. You yeah, know? right. And and so it, it's like I think that there's there's a lot to be said from, you know, like, you know, people, my generation, your generation, and, and folks older than us who, who will say, ah, oh, when I was a kid, we didn't have all these things to play with, right? right? right. And it's true, though. You know, I mean, not that, not that you can't find creative solutions with these tools and with these, quote, unquote, distractions, but right. there is... Um, a lot to a lot to be said for the ways in which we um, invent from nothing, right? And we v- invent out of necessity, you know. And right. necessity can almost be because there's a, a lack of something, you know, a lack of right. a resource. I was watching a great uh, little sort of film interview, uh, video interview yesterday. I'm trying to remember this guy's last name. He's a film composer, but. He has a he built a studio in L.A. that has this pipe organ from the the, the Fox. Uh, it was it had been in the Fox Studios, and it was this great breakdown of the pipe organ, but not a church pipe organ, but a theater pipe organ, mm-hmm. and and the ways in which these things were so um, just meticulously crafted and engineered to be able to be right. a virtual orchestra right. in the '30s, right. 1930s. Like, I mean, it was, wow. it, it was some deep stuff, you know? And right. I, and I just think, you know, that was like, okay, we need music. Well, we need an orchestra. Well, we're moving it beyond the piano. We got to putting this organ in a theater and, and the <laughs> stuff that this thing could do. It's like, right. Y- you got to, you know, when you, it's, I don't know if you would say it's totally a byproduct of boredom, but I think it's definitely a byproduct of need. Oh, and, and absolutely. How do, you, how, do you, how do you invent from that? And I just think when we get distracted, we miss out on, on, um, right. These wonderful um, kind of responses. 
Well, that's right. You know, I, I've always, you know, I tell students all the time that creativity comes from limiting your resources, not expanding them. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of like the, uh, you, you remember the old TV show MacGyver? Do you remember mm -hmm. that show? Yeah. You know, I love that show because, you know, he'd be like in a prison cell yeah. and he'd have a, like a rubber band and a paper clip. And, yep. he, and he'd have to figure out how am I going to break out? All I got is a rubber band and a paper clip. And somehow yeah. he would somehow he would figure out how to use that rubber band and paper clip to break out of that, yeah. that jail cell. So, I mean, yeah. I think yeah. I, I think that's what you're getting at. Right. Yep. That's yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. the ultimate that's the ultimate time that we need to be creative, that we end up the creativity is spawned. Yeah. And I think when you problem solve routinely, then you're more um, lubricated in that way. And that reflex becomes right. something that you can draw upon and pull out of the toolbox right. kind of at will. And, and, yeah. and I so I've always liked doing that. It's funny because friends will sort of tease me and say, "You've got this MacGyver thing." It's funny you bring him up because because I'll because <laughs> no because I think That's about awesome. like so, yeah the, but the, you know it's like I I problem solve that way continually and it's so funny with we were talking about the technology stuff before we went live and it's like right many things many things in this technology uh, zone are like um, you know you got some piece of gear that you want to hang on to. You got some piece of gear that's new that you're going to kind of try to right. put together and they yeah. don't actually like talking to each other. And you've got to find some hack oh and, and some workflow that can oh. can can repurpose something or you, I'm like, I refuse to get rid of this thing. You know, it's like, right. What's right. wrong with it? You know, it's just that you're right. Somebody's trying to make it obsolete. And I'm like, no, 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 it's it's fine. Yeah, you know? it's exactly right. You know, and so there's this constant um, challenge to sort of, you know, you know, bring in the new but not toss out the old, but they don't necessarily. Right. And, and technology right. is a great metaphor for that because it, of how quickly things can become cascaded out of oh my uh, circulation, you know. And, and, but I think that that mindset, um, I, I just think it's important, partly because you think artists, well, you know, we're studying the music and the art that came before us. Right. And in order to sort of contextualize that, we have to be able to draw a connection. Oh my goodness. Which is right? this invisible uh, functionality or it's this invisible relationship that you have to be able to graft into uh, the present and the future. And so well, that's right. we're constantly having to make those kinds of connections. Otherwise, we live in this vacuum. Correct. Absolutely correct. And that's, you know, that's a lot of times that's what's missing for young folks today, especially um, and in music and in jazz uh, specifically, you know, uh, I, I tell young students all the time that the curriculum, the blueprint, if you will, for us to become an accomplished jazz pianist has already been laid out. It's a historical evolution. It's a historical blueprint. So study that study that history so you know the transformation, the, the uh, evolution of the art form. So that you know you just can't jump in. You cannot just jump into the art form in 1990. Right. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. I'm going to start at 1990. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and forget everything else that's come before that. Yeah. You 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 miss you miss kind of you know fairly cogent reasons for the the way 1990 presents itself. Oh, exactly right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a frustrating kind of, but it's hard because everybody comes in where they come in. Correct. And and and, and so there's like you know there's a kind of a identity crisis I think that exists where you're but that's how I understand myself or that's how I right. understand the music right. and so like you're 
constantly right. having to sort of try to pry things away from people and say, no, no, we're not throwing it away. Correct. We're just trying to help you see something that's, you know, right. lived, lived prior to that and realize, oh, that wasn't the or originator, you know. Correct. Right. But, but I think, you know, the problem is like marketing and, and hype get in the way and it, and it sort of formulates this, um, you know, false narrative that people have to sort of then de deconstruct. Right. Right. So you, here you are at University of Michigan and, you know, your title, if I'm correct, assistant director at the school for improvisational music. Is that right? Well, that's not at the that's not at U of M. That's a totally separate um that's a totally separate enterprise. My oh, title, okay. My, yeah, my title at U of M is I'm an, I'm an associate professor. Okay, got yeah. it. Yeah. All right. So, but, well, but, talk to but, me about talk to me about that. The school of music, the school for improvisational music. So, school school for improvisational music. I'm the assistant director of that, and that is like okay. a summer summer workshop that uh, is a okay. program that that, that um, myself and Ralph Alessi run. But it, Ralph started it now 20 years ago. Okay. Um, I'm with you. And so it's taking improvisation from all of its forms, not looking at it strictly in a, in a, in a genre um, way, thinking about it from the point of view of playing tunes, from playing open, from composition, um, and try to like merge a lot of these sensibilities and foster um, a greater understanding for, for listening and for, you know, sort of reactive collaboration. Fantastic, um, and, and thinking about it from a lot of different angles stylistically, and so the faculty there is, you know, largely New York-based um, okay. practitioners who, who really are, are are you know sort of deeply embedded in the in the scene, but they're also you know, real. Uh, they're on the forefront of, of of really you know exploratory kind of music, but at the same time they're very rooted in the tradition, and so right. we're kind of constantly orbiting that relationship. Right. Right. So, you know, it's called this, the workshop is called SIM, School for Improvisational Music. And so we've okay. been fortunate to be able to bring and attract students from all over the world, actually. It's, wow. it's, it ends up being this two weeks in Brooklyn where we have, you know, players ranging from people who are in their 50s and 60s to right. people who might be in high school. Wow. Uh, and then a lot of college age students, for sure. Wow. Um, and, and from like from literally all over the world, from all over Europe, South America. Um, Asia, uh, North America, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, you know, not the entire, entire world, of course, but, but, but certainly uh, it's a wonderful kind of uh, diverse group of people that are coming together every summer. We didn't get to do it last summer, of course. Right. Right. And this summer we're unfortunately not going to do it because everything was so um, up in the air that just right. the two of us running it, we just kind of right. didn't have the bandwidth to kind of go, how are we going to pull this off? Because it is such a thing that we just felt like it really works in person because you were playing together. Right. We're playing together in groups of all kinds of configurations. And sometimes we'll have a mass piece that's like 30 people and, and it's improvised. It's not, it's not right. written. Right. You know, so right. it's not like we right. can do like a composite track on uh, <laughs> right. one of these apps and put and, and, and sort of pull right. everything together and, 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 and right. create that same sensibility. So we just kind of shelved it, but it was, it's a wonderful thing. And I look forward to us being able to, do it probably, I would say for sure, in summer of 2022. And you know, we bring in lots of guest artists that are, you know, aside from the core faculty. So it's a sim is it's you know it's it's a lot of work, but it's it's really it's been impactive, you know, and oh. and, and, and it's meaningful. So yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting kind of complement to what I do in 
in sort of more ongoing, uh, you know, pedagogic ways where I'm right. teaching the same students for right. years now. You know? Yeah, right. Well, speaking of pedagogy, I'm going to do a yeah. little rapid fire segment with you here right Uh-oh. now. So yeah, I'm going to I'm going to throw out some jazz piano skills, and I just want you to kind of talk off the top of your head with uh, how you approach um, how you approach studying these skills, how you approach practicing them, uh, and you know basically the do's and don'ts that you would also offer up uh, to the listeners. So let's start with the very first jazz piano skill that everybody hears about all the time, man. Let's talk about scales and arpeggios. What's, uh, what's the Andy Milne take on scales and arpeggios? I mean, I think help, they help you develop some fingering. Right. Um, I think, you know, they're also good for warming up. Um, but I think, and this is something I have to tell myself too, you're going to practice what you play. Sorry, you're going to play what you practice. Practice, right, right. So, so, so you have to kind of make an informed decision about what, what it is you're going to be repeating at home because that's going to come out uh, on a gig. Very good and, point. And so sometimes not practicing scales for their uh, content, but you know, merely for the, for the movement is one thing, but it's, it, you can't separate the two. Right. So I think practicing things in varied ways. I mean, scales and arpeggios are great, but just keeping keeping them varied because you want that variation to sort of be part of your expression. Right. Yeah, because the reality of it is just going up and down a scale or just going up and down an arpeggio is just not going to automatically transform itself into musical ideas for for you. It just won't. Right. Yeah. If you can unpack it, that's great. But I mean, yeah, yeah we want to work it to a certain degree that it actually is a useful tool so how do not otherwise it doesn't it's 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 not even there yet it's just not it's useless material right so do you uh i'm assuming you still practice traditional scales and arpeggios in the traditional way but you do unpack them in some unconventional ways you know maybe what in thirds How, how do you how do you go about practicing some scales and arpeggios when you sit down to do any scale and arpeggio work I practice them in groups, so I don't necessarily run a whole scale. I practice like just units, ah, um, yes, and going up like maybe up to a fifth and yeah. then down, and then or right. and just in terms of the way I might cycle them, so that right. I keep them a little bit more varied, um, you know, rather than just going up chromatically, right, um, and just like running the whole piano, right. Um, so I try to keep them. I try to keep them a little bit more varied. Yeah, so that so I always like to. Yeah, I always like to, with students, I always encourage them to have a different, that their entry point and destination points should always be different, you know, uh, because you want the ears engaged. So, you know, if I'm going to play a scale to the seventh, well, now I'm listening for the seventh. Right. You know, if I am if I play the scale to the ninth or if I play to the eleventh or maybe I'm playing from the third, maybe I'm playing from the third to the ninth or from the fifth to the eleventh or, you know, seventh to the thirteenth. So yeah, I'm always yeah. I'm I'm always asking students to always challenge themselves with different entry points and exit points. So the ears really are locking into hearing those. Right. So there's an element of ear training along with right. that. With That's the good. technique. Right. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. You know. So, okay, uh, voicings. Here's another skill that I find that jazz piano skills students wrestle with a lot of time. You know, jazz voicings. That's a 
that can get like fishing fishing line real fast, right? <laughs> tangled up, tangled up pretty quickly, right? Mm-hmm. So, how do you approach voicings, and what are some do's and don'ts that you can offer to the jazz piano skills listeners on voicings? Well, I think the one thing that's really important to remember is that more is not better, right? Um, right. <laughs> you know, it's like just because you have more fingers pressed down doesn't necessarily mean you have right. a more sophisticated right. chord. Right. Um, oh. So, so learning how to, you know, ex, you know, remove some doubling for sure. I think that's always a thing that I notice with students who are getting started. There's a lot of doubling, right? And there's a lot of, um, you know, of course, reposition stuff, which is, is right. not like reposition is not evil unto itself. It's just of evil course. if it's baked into this boxiness and i think boxiness is what's really the most you know offensive right. thing to the ears if you can if you can eliminate boxiness right um right. then you know you start to work with more smooth uh right. smoother movement and i think right. that's that that's the the secret right. it's not whether you have a lot of extensions or not i think you if, if, if things are well spaced so I, I like to think of it like a sandwich, you know. It's like, okay, I have a piece of bread in the bottom, a piece of bread in the top. Oh, there's my hand. Piece of bread in the bottom, top. And then what's going to go inside, you know. So I know I've got some sort of root structure, a root melody that right. needs to um, maintain a certain melodicism. Right. And I know I've got a melody on top. Whether it's the melody, it doesn't even matter. It's, it right. could be just a melody that, that, that right. is maintaining its own cohesive phraseology. Mm-hmm. And so between those two outside edges, now what am I, how, how am I going to, you know, what kind of sandwich am I going to make? What's the creamy filling? Right. And, and so that's the density, that's the color. Right, um, right. And then there's voice leading within that. But I think as long, starting with those two outside edges, so often I might have students to say, just play me the piece or just play right. me two ideas right. on the outside. Right. You know, and it's often a very strange phenomenon where, a student could do a bunch of stuff, but then when you ask them to do very little, they freak out. They're like, "Oh, I've never <laughs> right. done this before." <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's yeah. that's that. There's such irony in that, right? Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's so funny, man. And, so, and so okay, I, th- and I think about I think about that as a sort of starting point to get to get sort of awareness of the outside, right? Because to me, that's what the ear always hears, anyway. Right. It's like right. the things, it's like, you know, you got uh, yeah, that's right. cl- class photo. It's the kid who's like looking the other way, picking their nose on the corner <laughs> that the people point out. And they go, oh, that's my kid. You know? Right. So I, right. I think that it's important to kind of be mindful of those edges and not dismiss them as sort of like. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, and I always encourage students too. you know, I had a teacher that always used to tell me, encourage me all the time, you know. Uh, trust the ears, right? Trust your yeah. ears. You know, yeah. he used to always say to me, does it sound good? And I would go, yes. And he goes, well, then right. it's good. Does right. it sound bad? Yes, it is. Well, then it's bad. You know, and and, and we kind of, students kind of get wrapped around the theoretical aspect of a voicing as opposed to what, what are the ears, te- what are the ears telling us here? You know? Yeah. And, 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 and sorry, and what and, piano are you playing it on? Correct. What instrument? What instrument are you playing? Right. That's a huge, that, right? That's that's a big deal, and and then also the the genre. You know, you know, mm. of, yeah, the, yeah. the genre of music you're playing. I, I I always tell the story that when when I first got to Texas, and uh, it, literally I think it was like the first week I was in town, I got called to do a the the the, the sub and play piano in a country western band here in in Fort in Fort Worth. And I thought to myself, how how hard can that be? 
harder than you thought of. That's where the story's going, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, how hard can that be? And, uh, oh, did I lose you? No. I'm, oh, you there? Okay, I thought, uh, yeah. uh, okay, good. Yeah, so I thought, how hard can that be? And uh, I went out to play that country gig, man, and the steel guitarist and sitting next to me. I'm playing all my jazz voicings, and the steel guitar player <laughs> sitting next to me, man, he was like, what the heck are you playing, <laughs> Right. And I sweated bullets that whole night because I had to transform everything on the spot. You know, I had to transform how I was voicing based on the genre of music I was playing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because you started with the question talking about jazz, but certainly that is the, you know, can be the Achilles heel of a student right. of jazz or a jazz practitioner who's not sensitive to the fact that that's a sound, it's a language, and it lives in its own. Right environment, and it doesn't right. just can't always get shoehorned into every musical setting, and so, right there's a sort of a tipping point where you have to kind of tailor right. it to what, what the context that you're in, and 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 sort of upper extensions or dense seconds and stuff don't necessarily you know right. always work in in other yeah, forms of right. music. You know, in fact, I just got an email from a student before we uh, connected here this morning, and. He was confused. He asked about, well, so when playing piano, he goes, because he asked me about some voicings, and I, literally about voicings. And I laid out some shell voicings, left-handed shell voicings for him, and I laid out some two-handed voicings for him. And uh, they were rootless voicings. And so his question, he fired back a a question right away and said, well, wait a minute. Uh, When playing solo piano, do I not always have, don't I have to make the root uh, present at all times? And, And I said, no, you, you know, it's not a it's not an either or situation where the root has to be present or the root does not have to be present. And again, having to trust our ears with regards to how how is it sounding with what I'm playing. Mm-hmm. But but that's a that's another element of it, you know, because you brought up the roots. You know, a lot of times we become root dependent. Right. We, we, yeah, and I don't even necessarily mean the 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 root. Like if it's a C chord, it's a C in the bottom. But what is on the bottom? Right. And how is that moving? But but I think there's you brought up an interesting kind of dilemma where um, often you know student will come into my studio and they'll be like sit down and play a piece or they'll doing it on Zoom or whatever. And I'm thinking, right. uh, excuse me, I don't see a bass player in here. Do you, do you see a bass player in the room? You know, no. I said, well, well could you throw a root in every now and then? You know, right. and they, it would oh, be nice. ne- they, but they'll say, oh, I've never played the tune this this way. So oh, how do you right. like, how do you practice? Do you practice with a right. bass player? Or they're like, oh, I practice with iReel. I'm like, well, that's not really practicing that's, with anything. That's like right. at least put on a record for starters. Right. But but that's not. I mean, that's not. I said, would you go do a gig with iReel Pro? Right. They're like, no. Right. I said, well then. Right. What's what is that? That's just that's just an annoying. Uh, it's just an annoying Casio tone. It's not. <laughs> I don't. I don't. You know. So I, I'm not like a big fan of like, using that as a way to, right, pre- present music. I think. I think it's not. Uh, um, you know. It's right. It's it's it's, it's, a, it's it's a tool to kind of go. Oh, that's how that song goes. It's it's a tool. It's like I, I always describe it as like a flight simulator for pilots. You know, it's not the real deal, right? It's not right. the real. Pl- it's not the real plane. It's not the real. It's not the real weather uh, uh, situation that you have to fly through. But it is a simulation, and, and that kind of yeah. It, and it kind of gives you a perspective 
but yeah, you 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 bring up a great point. You're playing in a room and there's not a bass player. Come on, please. You know. Yeah. At, at some point in the in, in the eight bars, I need to hear a root. I'm I I have good ears, but at some point, I'm going to be where the hell are you? <laughs> you know. I want to hear a root. Be, at some... Right. You can't be completely rootless. No, I right. mean you gotta be you gotta ground us on some place. And so I but I always find that a very uh oh. particular dilemma that young students sort of are faced with when they when we engage for the first time. I'm like but uh, you know, there, it, 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 this is this absolute where I'm like, Okay, I'm playing all these shell voices. I'm just like, that's that's great. If that's where you are. Right. But look right. around and that's not where you are. And to me that being in the present it doesn't right. matter whether there's a bass player in a room, whether you're talking about being, whether whether we're talking about a bass player being in the room or not, whether we're right. talking about playing an electric piano or an acoustic right. piano, whether we're talking right. about playing an in tune out of piano, tune piano, whether we're talking about playing fast, slow, with a right. singer, without a singer, right, um, in a room that's super cavernous, right, you know, right, wh whatever it is, like right. you know, with somebody who doesn't know the tune, like whatever the whatever the present circumstances are, that right. being in the presence uh, skill set. <laughs> Right, it's it extends across all of those possible right. choices. Right, and so that's why I think practicing to to be that way, to think in the present all the time, correct, is is it's the gift that gives on all those fronts because now right. you're not you're not limiting it to like well he said to put them roots in every now and then I'm like that's not totally the point. Correct, it, it, it's, right. It's 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 that illustration is like okay, what's going on. In terms of the support of the of the right harmonic structure at that moment, yeah, but it's like it's more of a reflection of like, are you listening? Well, it, it, I was just going to say it. It, it. it all heads. It all goes right back to the ears, right? Yeah. It it all goes back to the ears. So yeah. Okay, so now here's another here's another skill I want to throw out: uh, articulation. Mm. Articulation. How do you address? How do you teach? students there at the University of Michigan or that you're working with privately how do you help students wrap their mind around their ears around and their hands around how to properly articulate jazz at different stages in everyone's development I think it's partly to do with what they can hear mm -hmm. because if they can't hear an articulation if they can't distinguish between the subtlety of two different articulations I don't know that you could play it. It's like right. language that if you can't hear the difference between how I pronounce two different words, right, right, you're not you, the subtlety is lost on you, right. And right. so we have to we have to refine our ears as much as we do our hands. Correct. And I think it's important that when you're listening to music. So I've given some students assignments to ask them to listen, um, you know, really deeply and work on you know, singing something, working on singing that articulation, singing with the recording and recording themselves, yeah. singing with the recording right. so yeah. that they can see, can I hear the difference? Right. And if they come back and say, I can't, then we listen and say, oh, actually you can, but you didn't, you're not um, maybe appreciating that you can because here's, right. here's you six months ago. Right. Excuse yeah. me. And so right. I think that we start with, we start with trying to be able to hear it because I think you can't play something that you can't, you don't know what you're going for. Yeah. So assuming yeah. that we've done that work, then it's then it's a matter of like, okay, maybe it is a transcription um, of something that you really want to sort of align yourself with a certain way of approaching, so that you can sit down and kind of 
you know, deal with something specific. It's as though it's playing. It's as though you're playing classical music in a way, right? Because you're right. trying to sort of um, c create a, a target and a and a consistency that you can go for. I think it's harder right. to do um, without maybe taking that step in between versus right. just eliminating that and wanting wanting right. to improvise it from the get go. Right. You know. Uh, I, again. You know. Your your encouragement of listening, right? Going and listening to recordings and such. You know, I, I've told students too, I've used this analogy that, you know, if, if I wanted to, let's say I had a goal to speak French. I wanted to learn how to speak French. Yeah. I, I would go out and I would get every tape, every recording of people speaking French that I could, and I would listen to them speaking French as I'm driving around in my car or cooking in the kitchen or whatever. I wouldn't even care what words they were saying. It wouldn't right. matter to me what words they were saying. I would just be trying to get that articulation down, that feel down, that delivery down. And yeah, I'll get worry the cadence about, in your head. That's right, the cadence, yeah. right? Yeah. So I, I'd, I'll worry about the words later. I just need to learn to articulate, right? Yeah, yeah. Now I have, like, I have a student who's just graduated. She was a master's student, but she's um, a classical pianist who uh -huh. just really, you know, decided, yeah, I really want to know more about this. And she and I... Uh, work together and she'd come to my studio class right. and you know all, all the jazz students like really liked her and she really kind of enjoyed having her in the class because right. it was it was a really interesting reflection on their experience seen through this person who actually right. hadn't listened to this music at all right and and yet sort of wanting to understand it but I was like you have to start listening to it you know mm -hmm. and so like she's now back in Hong Kong and she's like you know going to do a uh, a, a doctoral program in you know, know next year but in, in classical performance but but still you know over this next several months her you know kind of outstanding assignment for me is to do much more listening to the point that she can distinguish between the sound of right. a fats waller and the sound oh. of a james p johnson and right. the sound of a of right. a you know an albert daly or the sound of a like right. a in Johnny O'Neill or something like this and being able to listen to these players and, and hear you know not not just oh they're playing a different piece or this recording quality is different but just something in, in, in the way in which these players their their weight and their articulation and their and, and, and this and the style in which they play too for sure but right. but because so many of these things that we would talk about in class about improvisation it was like really putting things in advance of where her ears were at for the music Right. Because she might hear something and, and have an association based upon a time in history or a right. place right. in the world. Right. You know, which is on one level useful from a musicology standpoint. Right. But it isn't useful as much when you actually have to imagine the doing. Right. Um, because it's not it, it's it's sort of more about a that's like a soundbite rather than what's the, what's the movie really about right right um, and and so that was you know kind of interesting to kind of work with her to get that's neat yeah a, a deeper um, relationship with her ears yeah because it's not just like the technical it's also what does it how does it make you feel you know right because there's right. something in that that um, whether the the player has specifically decided I want to make you feel this way or not. Right. They don't necessarily have to make that decision. There is that in there is that an emotional component 
to, to the way in which their hand meets the instrument. No doubt. Right? As musicians listening again, it's it's so crucial, right? Spending time passive and active listening, right? Yeah. Right? Even passive listening, having it on. Yeah. You know? While you're like I said, like while you're cooking in the kitchen, have it on, right? Yeah, you know, I think if it's the only if, if you only ever do passive, then you then you're missing out on the fact that oh, you got to go deep, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. For you, sure, you, both you, of them account. You you have to have both, you know, and it's it's no different than you know if 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 there's a if there's a young individual, young man that wants to be a uh, you know great basketball player, and if you asked him if you ever watched Michael Jordan, and he said no. You'd be puzzled, right? right, right. <laughs> you go like, what? What? <laughs> you know. So, um, okay, here's another one, just real quick. And I, I say real quick, but this is maybe the heaviest <laughs> one. How do you approach? How do you approach? We already touched on creativity a little earlier with the with the MacGyver uh, <laughs> comparison, right? right? But yeah, how yeah. do you approach teaching, helping students learn how to? improvise right this is a this is a big hurdle right how do you help them jump that hurdle and begin exploring and developing their improvisational skills well i mean that that and if we're talking about anybody not necessarily a jazz like a like sort of a maybe typical jazz piano student right this the, the the student i was just referring to in a way that that part of that experience it's like where do you start? You start by saying, all right, you have some music in your head. Now, with that music that you have in your head, I want you to play me the essence of that music. Mm. You know, I, I kind of create little modules where it's like, okay, I want you to play the essence of that. Or I want you to, I want to restrict your resources. Right. Again, sort of related to the boredom thing. You know, right. I want to restrict your resources and right. say, okay, now only play this interval but express that melody right only play this rhythm but express that melody you know right. uh, only play staccato only play legato like whatever you know you can place these restrictions on but i think it's like that again is becomes that um turning point where like you're actually improvising because you're having to devise a, an answer that is not already laid out for you right and so but sometimes i start that way with someone especially the student i was talking about i you know we we used classical repertoire that she was familiar with and say okay now we're going to unpack this i don't need to hear the whole piece i'm just going to unpack these eight bars right right you know and i wanted to see if you can take this material and begin to repurpose it right so i i often start that way even if it's somebody who's coming to improvisation with a bit more context than someone like this student I was referring to, that we're, right. we're you know, um, having having um, a little bit of listening context where you're like, okay, yeah, I've listened to a bunch right. of people play this piece of music, right. you know, but like, okay, set it up. Right. Okay. Right. No, no, no. What, what do you mean? No, no, don't play. Don't just play the last four bars. Set right. it up. You know, right. I need you to get from all the way down the street to here. <laughs> You can't even see my house from there, but I need you to kind of describe it to somebody as you're walking over here. Right. And, and you know, to your point, you know, we talked about, we've already touched upon this as well, right? More doesn't mean better. Right. So, so you can take two notes, right? And I always use like, 
uh, Strayhorns, you know, C Jam Blues, and you know, look what look look what they do with two, uh, the note G and the note C, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That you could improvise with two notes and right. bring ry- rhythmic interest with those two notes and say something. You can get yeah. down the you can get down the street with those two notes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and that's the thing again, the limitation. Like you put you put that on, right. whether somebody's given it to you to put on it, or you or you just create right. it yourself. Yeah, because I think the I think the imagery that the student, the young jazzer, gets in their mind as soon as you say improvisation, I I think the imagery that they get is the hand moving rapidly up and down the piano. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. And uh, and it's our job to say, whoa, yeah. let's pump the brakes here a little bit. <laughs> it's the low hanging fruit, Bob. Right. Like it's right. like it's it's very easy to see that and 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 conclude. That's what improvisation is. Right. It's that's it's, a, it's shredding. Right. Right. You know, it's very easy to conclude that because that's that's what is what would distinguish it from um in a way that's like it's also what's gravity it's sort of what grips people in a way. You're like, oh my god, look at look at all that activity, you know? Right. Right. And, right. and not seeing the fact that there can be this improvisational gesture that's this little one off embellishment. Correct. So like you might give somebody a piece of music that's like incredibly difficult to execute and they got them focusing on it like through the 16 bars or 24 bars or 29 bars or whatever it happens to be. Right. But there might be this one moment for three beats. Right. Where they have this opportunity to um, express themselves just briefly before they get back to what what's written. Right. Even acknowledging the sort of weight and impact of what their response might be to that three beat right. pause right. is improvisation that is worthy of being respected as much as listening to Coltrane, you know, no and, doubt. And, and I think that that's um, I mean, they're not in the same magnitude for sure. But there's but but to sort of eliminate the, the importance of those little improvisational gestures and not seeing the sort of effort right. that went into that and the sort of right. courage that went into that. I think that's a big thing. It's like, so that's the other thing I'm sort of leading myself here. It's like, yeah, teaching courage or, or encouraging courage, <laughs> right. encouraging, you know, that's very that's good. Weird. That's very a, that's good. a very big thing, you know, a, a, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. So man, you know what, Andy, we could, we could go like <laughs> for three days here, right? If they, in the if marathon, would, yeah, if somebody br- would bring me a pizza, I could sit here and just <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> talk all day, man. This is fun, but um, I know you got a gig to get to, and well, I got uh, some, I got a couple hours, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah. So, um, where does you know you, you, uh, let folks know how to get in touch with you if they want to reach out to you? Your social media, you have. Do you have uh, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff? Or no? I, I do have the Facebook and the Twitter. I tend to be a little, um, I'm pretty low key in the social medias. I'm an old school guy. I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I mean, I do, I do check it, but it's like the kind of thing where it, it, you get me much faster if you just go to my website and email me, andymillen.com. Great. That's, that's, yeah. a, that's a quick way to sort of, sort of see what I'm up to. More or less, you know, yeah. I, can't, I don't say I, I don't say I'm sharing. I'm, I'm not really an oversharer yeah, in right. that world. Right. If you want me to share, I, you do this and I'll share quite freely. But like I right. tend not to be sort of like you're not necessarily going to know what I'm up to right now. 
Right. That well, way. you know, I, I'm so old school, man. My wife, I'll answer a text from my wife, and she'll text me back and say, that was three days ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. how old not, school. You're, you're even more old school than me. I mean, I have a, <laughs> let's put it this way. I have a landline. <laughs> right. My yeah. house is wired for, for wired Ethernet, but I still use Wi-Fi. But, um, and... And I do, I do text uh, message, but I, the, the funny thing about that, that whole idea of like that was three days ago or three weeks ago, right? People have messaged me on Facebook and saying, "Yeah, I, I'm coming to town. Let's get together." And I would see that message like six weeks after they had been. There. <laughs> and I was like, so "You could have just, could have just emailed me. I would have got together with you." <laughs> right. Yeah, we can hang. You and me, we we can hang, man. Because <laughs> I, I'm the same way. So. You know, well, what's funny is I just reached out to you. I just sent you an email, man, and yeah. you were gracious, sent one back. That's yeah, that, yeah. we're old school guys. We're, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah. Email, email is advanced for us, so you know, it's just it's easier to keep track of. <laughs> I don't. I, I. It's like I can go to one place and I can keep track of emails from seven or eight different accounts. Uh-oh. Facebook, it's this <laughs> tiny little thing. I'm not gonna. I'm not good. I got big thumbs. <laughs> I got big thumbs. I mean, it's like I, I got Randy Weston, Fred Flintstone thumbs. I don't. Oh, that's great. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So listen, man, it has been a thrill. It's a, a joy to uh, start our friendship, and it's a thrill to have you on Jazz yeah. Piano Skills. And uh, we're going to have you back, man, because uh, like I said, you, you got like about three lifetimes here to unpack for us. So, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're going to have you back on soon if that's okay with you, man. That'd be fun. Yeah, that'd be fun. Awesome. Well, listen, thank you so much uh, for being on Jazz Piano Skills. And I want to, again, once again, encourage everyone, all listeners out there, please go to Google, search up Andy, Andy Milne, and uh, Check out all the videos. Tons of performance out there. Read his bio. Look at his stuff. It's it's awesome. It's really tremendous, man. So thanks for all that you do uh, educationally and musically uh, to help promote jazz and to help train the next young lions of jazz that are coming up and, and going to continue this uh, tremendous art form. So on behalf of the entire jazz world, I want to say thank you for all that you do. Oh, well, back at you. I appreciate that very much. Awesome, man. Yeah. All right, folks. That's it, and uh, we will see you all next week on Jazz Piano Skills. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andy. Thank you. Well, I hope you have found this Jazz Piano Skills podcast with special guest Andy Milne to be insightful and, of course, beneficial. One of my mentors and teachers, Al Franzen, used to say to me after every lesson, never forget the greatest thing about music is the people you meet through it. And the privilege of meeting and spending time with Andy simply confirms Al's sentiment 100%. Don't forget, if you are a Jazz Panel Skills member, I will see you online Thursday evening at the Jazz Panel Skills Masterclass, 8 p.m. Central Time, to, to discuss this podcast episode featuring Andy Milne in greater detail and to answer any questions you may have about the study of jazz in general. As always, you can reach me by phone, 972-380-8050, extension 211, by email, drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com, drlawrence at jazzpianoskills.com, or by SpeakPipe, found throughout the Jazz Piano Skills website. Well, there's my cue. 
That's it for now. And until next week, enjoy the journey. Enjoy the pearls of wisdom shared by Andy Milne. And most of all, have fun as you discover, learn, and play jazz piano.